The Swinging Palm Trees Podcast with Akin. Good morning, good afternoon, and whatever time zone you find yourself in, this is the Swinging Palm Trees Podcast. My name's Akin, and on today's episode, I am honored to have a member of the family on who is, you know what, Vina, kindly introduce yourself to the listeners, please. I'm Vina Nagnada. I am family to Akin through Ashanti Omkar, who is my cousin of unknown origin, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) We're Tamil cousins, so we're related in many, many ways. It's, it's just like Nigerians. Who is he? He's your uncle. In what way? He's your uncle. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Although I feel like other people will be able to actually define how we're cousins, but I always get lost in all of that. I am also a doctor. I'm an anaesthetic doctor. Uh, I'm currently working at Royal London Hospital, which is one of the teaching hospitals in London, in Whitechapel, in the East End of London. It's a great place to work. I'm still in training and I still have about three more years of training to go before I'm a consultant. Um, yeah, that's me. So when you say you have three more years to go and like any other career, you learn on the job and you're keeping, you keep on learning and you keep on learning. How many exams have you done so far in the past 18 months? <laughs> in the past 18 months, I've done, I want to say f- three exams, but it may be four. In total, I have done four exams. In 18 months. I think in 18, it might just be three. Now, are the exams like back in secondary school where you're in the classroom, all bunch of you, you're sitting there and then someone doesn't know the answer and someone's going, hey, what's the answer to A? (laughs) I wish it was. I wish it was. You know, there used to be kind of like a school exam because before we did do it in person. So over the last two years, it has become, uh, it's gone online. But before... It used to be a terrible sort of experience, but also there was some level of camaraderie in it because we all, it was all your batch of anaesthetists and we all used to prepare for this exam where we'd lose our life for at least three months. And then we'd all meet up in this weird hotel hall in Holborn and which was quite near the college, but they used to rent it out for the exam. And it was this massive hotel hall, which was quite reminiscent of like a school hall. And I remember my first ever written exam, which was in 2017 now. And we went in there and it's so loud and someone, like you're meant to leave all your bags on the side and turn your phone off. And someone had left it on and their ringtone came on. And, you know, they're like trying to all the examiners and invigilators are trying to hurry and find the bag to remove it. And then halfway through the exam, so there's a hall behind us and they start playing some intense drum and bass. <laughs> <laughs> so you're all trying to concentrate, but all you can hear is this drum and bass going through the wall. Uh And then, you know, you go out and then you meet all of your friends and some of the people you work with currently, some you've 
met before as a junior doctor or met in some other context and it's just really nice and then he used to go out for a drink and it was very it was it it was an experience you know but now it's at home which has its conveniences in its own way like for us we're always quite fortunate because we live in London so the exam's always in London so travel is just a matter of getting a train whereas trainees from other parts of the country have to book accommodation they have to pay for that accommodation they have to come here you know they have to sleep in a new place and then come sit an exam which they're really worried about so that's all been taken out of the picture for those people and it is nice to like sit in in your house and like during normally the exams in two parts so there'll be a morning and an afternoon for each exam so you know you do your morning exam and then you can have a little nap on the sofa it's a nice <laughs> life isn't it <laughs> it's not so bad but you don't have that ability to sort of decompress afterwards where you meet your friends and talk about that one question that bothered you or you're like they definitely wrote that question wrong it's not me not knowing the answer it's it's the question that's the problem right uh you can't do that anymore you just have to maybe phone one friend and rant about the exam so you come from a family of medical practitioners was this influential in you wanting to become a doctor no my parents were definitely uh, highly influential in my decision I was actually born in my parents' hospital in Jaffna. So from a very young age, I was completely immersed in medicine. So, you know, at the time we lived in that hospital, it was the height of, you know, the war um, in, in, in the northern province of Sri Lanka in Jaffna. So, and at, at points, the Jaffna teaching hospital was closed. So my parents would actually see a lot of the significant injuries in this very small sort of um, rural hospital, which was initially, they they made it to be a maternity hospital in a small town in Jaffna, but ended up taking up a lot of cases during the height of troubles. And during that time, you know, I'd, I'd be there, I'd be there receiving, at the receiving entrance of the patients, I'd see what was happening. So it's hard not to get, you know, sort of uh, swept away by that and to see what impact they were making. And even after we left, you know, even after we came to England, and I remember even like on a holiday in Canada, people would just notice them down the streets. And, you know, they'd be so thankful for the service that they provided. Um, like one day we were walking in Toronto randomly in, I think it was Markham in Toronto. And this man just starts running up to me going, Dr. Naganada, Dr. Naganada. And I was 18 at this time. And then, he, and I was just, I just stopped. And then he was just like, are you, is your mum Dr. Naganada? And I was like, yes. And he was just like, you look exactly like her. And I was like, oh, she's just, because me and my cousin said, kept walking ahead of her. And, I, and she was there with our, my aunts behind. And I was like, oh, she's just right there. And then he ran up to her and then he was just sort of, you know, speaking to her and telling her about how she'd uh, delivered his daughter. Oh, wow. And actually had named her as well. And, you know, that's that's just so impressive that after almost 15 years that they still remember that. And that definitely did influence my decision to be a doctor. But however, it almost felt like, you know, I was 
conforming to my parent what my parents wanted. So at 16, I was like, oh, am I just doing this? Because is this what that what they want me to do? Or am I just do am I actually doing this? Because it's what I'm interested in. And and also I was good at science and math. Like it, it happened to be that I was good at You're it. a show off. So I don't care. I, really <laughs> <laughs> no, I wish I was good at art or history. I really tried, but I was terrible at them. I really tried hard, but I just didn't have... Yeah, but think about it. If you happen to be on a plane and an incident takes place whereby they need a doctor, you know, it's like, is there a doctor on board? You can raise your arm up, you know, in style. The rest of us mere mortals, we can't do that. Is there a photographer on board? For what? <laughs> I think now most people want a photographer on board. <laughs> well, everyone's just got a mobile phone and just take the pictures. <laughs> so based on your background uh well not necessarily background but based on your life and the influence from the war that took place in Sri Lanka and your parents that got you well that influenced you to getting into the sciences especially medical one of your things that you've worked on is trauma research you were a trauma research fellow at Queen Mary's University of London and you did a piece on the secondary cardio injury and dysfunction in trauma that's a mouthful. Yeah. Tell us a bit about that. Um, so that was my doctoral thesis. So after my two years as a junior doctor, I went into research in trauma. And I did that for four years at Royal London Hospital. So I, I trained at Barts in the London. And one of my main training hospitals was the Royal London. And there, there's always been an amazing trauma service, as far as I can remember, and as a medical student, I got involved with the department doing basic sort of data collection. And I did my special study module there. And I really sort of just fell in love with the subject. And it's it sort of is similar to the things that I saw my parents do when I was younger. So I felt maybe maybe it was that that drew me to it. But also, it's just such a complex, it's not just scientifically like something that um, interests me but also there's a lot of socioeconomic things um, associated with it that did interest me one like we live in East London it's not just road traffic accidents there were young people particularly young men who were getting involved in gang crimes and there was a lot of penetrating injuries like stabbings and things that were on the rise and these were all well, young people who, if they had the right treatment at the beginning, would do so well. And particularly where I did my research, one of the professors, Professor Bro, he has been fundamental in changing the way the trauma, a trauma network works in London. So, you know, before we didn't have such an organized way of dealing with trauma. So now we have it's centralized. So if you have any significant injury, which is complicated or complex, that goes to one of the major trauma centers. So Royal London being one and St. George's and King's and, and St. Mary's in the West London, in the West of London. And so this means that the people who have these very complicated injuries can make it to these centres where there are multiple disciplines who can deal with it in an appropriate manner. And whereas 
you might not always have that expertise in a smaller centre. And it kind of now sounds like common sense, but this wasn't always the case. Even when I was a medical student, this wasn't a well-established organisation. So now there are particular things that the ambulance crew will recognise. And when those targets are met, they'll be like, okay, this patient isn't suitable for your smaller district general. They need to go to a big centre where they can have the appropriate expertise to treat their injury and treat the consequences of their injuries as well. And so at that point, it was when I was a medical student, it was like a thriving specialty, like it was still very young, there was lots to be done. So I was very excited to be part of it. And then after I finished my foundation years, I wasn't really sure whether I wanted to do surgery at the time or whether I wanted to do intensive care. And I definitely knew I wanted to do something in academic research. And when I went to see my professor about it, he said there was this opportunity, apply for it. And then I started doing my PhD. And in that year, I also got to work at the intensive care at Royal London as well. Then I joined uh, the group for um, to, do, to do more research in the field. Um, and at that point, there was one of the previous uh, surgeons who'd finished his PhD and he'd he'd started this um, looking into secondary cardiac injury in patients, in these young patients, particularly young patients, because as a young person, if you have something, a significant injury happen to you and you've bled a lot, your body should still be able to compensate for it and deal with it. But we were seeing this sort of small group of people for some reason that their heart would decompensate and misbehave. And it was to find out more about why that was happening and does this have long-term consequences and is there something we can do to stop it or improve that those patients' outcomes. So um, it was really it was really interesting. It was a great time. There was very little information on it. So um, and even to this day, there's very little information on like why it happens or for sure. We don't 100% know. We have some hypotheses, but it's it's difficult to prove these things. But what looking into it does is it informs the way we think about treating these patients. And, you know, there are certain things we can take more caution with when we treat them. So initially, I so the researcher who'd previously left had already started a big study, so recruiting patients into looking at cardiac injury. So I basically went for the end of that and then looked at the data that had been collected from it and looked at different markers that look at cardiac injury. And we did find that there is a small group of patients who do develop this sort of injury to their heart when that hasn't been the primary problem. So you can have, you can be hit by a car and you can injure your legs, arms, head, and then for some reason, your heart will also get affected secondary to all of those injury without having a direct hit it in itself. And my research then focused basically on looking into why these things happen. Um, and initially I looked at humans, but then also looked at uh, mice as well with the help of another researcher. Um, and it, it was just a really interesting time because I don't think often as medics, we don't get to be very creative. And 
to a certain degree with research, I think that there does need to be some space where you are able to sort of collate information and then think about how you can design an experiment to see if that, if you could prove your hypothesis wrong or right. Um, and And it was an unusual opportunity to get to do that. Do you believe that a lot or enough is being done in the research of trauma? I think uh, probably not. Um, It's difficult because I think now, I think once upon a time there was very little. I think now there is a lot of interest, particularly because there are some great advocates uh, for trauma research in England and in, um, in America. And particularly, like, even within just our hospital, because as I said, it's not, it's not just a scientific problem. It's also, there are huge socioeconomic, like, factors that play into the reason that trauma happens and the reason why our outcomes are bad. And I think we have some big advocates of it here. We have uh, Professor Brohi uh, at the London, who is also the director of the London Trauma Network, who speaks about it like publicly, which I think we don't do enough as medics. I think we don't sort of do, um, we're not very good at PR, but I think there the trauma the trauma researchers here have made some attempts to do that uh like our professor in in conjunction with one of the uh american professors did a short ama on reddit like you know things like that or you know appearing on the news and also we have a another trauma surgeon who's uh, by the name of mr martin griffiths he's actually I think he was born in the south of London. He's Jamaican in um, origin, and he does a lot of work with L- London youth violence and in attempts to reduce London youth violence, because that has been such a concern for us over the last like decade, really, with such a steep increase in young people coming in with injuries sec- secondary to violent gang crime. And these are young young men there's some of them still children and you know and I I think it's important for us to remember that and it's important for us to see them that way because it's easy when a 15 year old comes in weighing like 80 kilos to treat him like a grown man particularly when you know he comes in with a injury secondary to a stabbing the assumptions are that he was in some way involved and that may or may not be true, but he's still a 15-year-old. You know, he's still a child. And there are there must have been some lapses in his community, whether that's his family or the wider community, as in us, that has led to him being in that situation. And I think it's as important to address that as it is to address the injury in itself. Because I think recognising, because now we have a team that's based within the hospital in itself that engages with the these children to see if that anything can be changed to avoid them getting into the same situation again in the future i i think those are the more meaningful things um obviously i'm not saying the scientific uh, information we gain from like doing research isn't as important but 
those things are more impactful. You've written another paper, and uh, let me see what I've got here, which is mechanisms involved in secondary cardiac dysfunction in animals, models, and trauma. Hemogeric shock. Did I pronounce that properly? Hemogeric There you go. Excellent. Yeah. So I'm guessing it's similar to what you wrote before, or are they two different things? So... So the animal studies were spurred on by the the prospective study looking at injured patients, where we did notice that the injured patients were developing some cardiac arrhythmias, and they were. This was also associated with increase in proteins, which indicated cardiac injury. But these were only associations between each of those things, and so we wanted to see if we could actually find the underlying mechanism. So one of the researchers um, made these amazing models, which showed, um, which which basically replicated injury and bleeding in mice. And after they had a period where they were bled and injured, they were culled, and then their hearts were taken out and given passed on to me. And then I would look at the different proteins which which indicate cardiac injury. And then I also looked at the tissue in itself, so the heart tissues in itself. And when initially I looked at the heart tissues, because I was convinced initially that this was all because of a huge stress response that the body produces. So when we're really stressed, even when we're really excited, we have this huge surge of adrenaline and noradrenaline which are are like fight hormones and sometimes when you have like this huge surge of those hormones it basically your heart takes a beating because the the response of the heart from these hormones is to beat harder and beat faster and which is a positive thing when you're in a stressful uh, situation such as when you've just had an injury but when that response is excessive, it can basically cause the heart to fail. And uh, this is this is a, a phenomenon that's sometimes seen and it's called Takotsubo's cardiomyopathy. And I thought maybe in these patients, that's what they're experiencing because it was a transient cardiac complication that would soon get better afterwards. Um, so I was interested in seeing the actual heart muscle in itself because that syndrome has certain features that you can see. But then when I started looking at the slices, um, I noticed that the mitochondria, which is like the powerhouse of the cells, looked slightly odd. They didn't look normal. And they were uh, doing this thing where they were kind of just splitting away. And this, then I I didn't, like, I just saw it and I didn't really know what it meant. So I'd spoken to one of our uh, pathology professors and I showed her and she said, oh, this, this could be a sign of mitochondrial stress. This is something they sometimes do when they're stressed. And there are certain proteins that could drive this kind of change in their, in their morphology. So she was like, oh, it might be interesting to look at those proteins so then I went away and spoke to a few other scientists and and developed an experiment to basically look at those proteins. 
And it was it was very difficult to actually because it, it sounds it's like oh yeah, everyone's like, oh, yeah, go look at this protein. And you're like, oh, yeah, cool. And, you know, like from reading papers, how people look at proteins and you're like, oh, I can do that. Uh, I just need a few people to tell me how to do it and I'll do it. And then you start doing it and it just fails. Like it fails and it fails and you're like, oh, God, I'm never going to be able to get this right. And you try different techniques and everyone has their own way which works for them and they're like nope this is the one if you do it this way you're definitely going to get uh you know you're definitely going to be able to get a good marker and get a good way of uh extracting your proteins and so I tried loads of different experiments and it was actually quite a lonely time because you know, you're doing this thing that you're really excited about and you think is going to show something and no one else really knows much more about it. And I'm sure like in the world, there are hundreds of people who know much more about it and could have definitely helped me. But within within my uh, school, there are people who have like expertise in particular things that you have to seek and get their advice from and they have like years of experience so are very helpful but then when you go and do it on your own you know when it fails you don't really have anyone to go to um and then so after months and months of trial and error I eventually got a few protein bands which is what you look at and it was it was very exciting but then you don't know what it, what like you, you, you're doing something because you think like maybe it will show something, maybe it won't. You don't know. It's it's a hypothesis after all. Like you don't know whether this is going to end up showing something or not. But eventually after, like I'm missing out all of the other things that I thought it could have been that, you know, didn't end up being a paper. This is the one that ended up being a paper. Um, were, then eventually there was one protein um which basically is released by the mitochondria when the mitochondria is stressed, which leads to leads to processes that leads to a cell dying. And this was particularly higher in the in the mice that are gone through the trauma and gone through the injury compared to the mice who hadn't. So this was a hypothesis that was then we uh, sort of put forward to the scientific community through that paper being like, well, maybe the cardiac injury that we see in traumatic injuries, traumatic injuries associated with bleeding is because of mitochondrial dysfunction. But yeah, no. Uh, and that that's it. They're currently they're doing well. That's really it. That's it. That's okay. It. I have to admit, listening to what you're saying, I got the gist of it, but the majority of what you're talking about just went right over my head. It's like, and then when you and when you started, I mean, I mean, don't get me wrong. What you were saying, it sounds kosher. It sounds really intense, but you know, for us mere mortals, we're like. What the hell is she on about? I don't know. Just keep on smiling and see and nod your head like you know what she's talking about. <laughs> but you do mention a few words which seem like a tongue twister if I were to pronounce it like the one I tried earlier, which was the he hemo hemo 
was you know the hemorrhagic shock was <laughs> just butchered it. Hemorrhagic shock. Okay, you see, you see what I'm talking about. This means bleeding. <laughs> Have you ever come across a word, a medical scientific word, which has just taken the fight out of your mouth? Oh, I have problems. <laughs> As English is not 100% my first language, like I learned English and Tamil simultaneously. So I have constant problems <laughs> pronouncing, pronouncing things. So like, uh, I'm trying to think of something right now. Like drugs, I find so difficult. Like clopidogrel. The, the what now? Yeah, exactly. This one drug. It's literally taken me about 10 years. I'm not even sure I'm saying it right now. <laughs> <laughs> but there are hundreds of words. I have, there are so many words that I struggle, not even medical words. Like I'll, my friends laugh at me every time I say this. Vehicle. Vehicle. Do you know what I'm saying? Vehicle. A car? Vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> but... I say vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to admit, it does sound a bit Tamil. It's like vehicle. <laughs> and I, I can't, I can't, I can't really, I'm, I know I'm saying it wrong, but I can't change it. So picture the scene. You happen to be with um, the consultants and you're with the patient and you're with medical trainees and you're given a report of some kind of medical finding and a particular word comes up, which you need to say to your peers so they know exactly what you're talking about. What word have you had to come across and say, nope, this isn't happening? Oh, man, so many of these. Like, this happens to be on a daily basis. I'm trying... There's so many, this happens like on a regular basis. And, but it's come to a point now that I don't really care. I'm like, I'm going to say it how I say it. People definitely know what I mean. And if they don't, they can ask me and I can just be like, hey, this word, do you want to read it out? <laughs> but, um, oh, I can't say cohort. Cohort. You yeah. just did. Oh, did yeah. I? Someone told me I sound like I'm suddenly Northern when I say it. Um, oh, there's so many, and particularly with our exams being online and things, there are so many words. Like when you know when we're vivid, um, someone's asking you questions, and you you just have to keep speaking. And on those occasions, there are so many words that I know I'm saying wrong, but I'm just I've come to a point where I I feel like less harm is done if I just carry on talking rather than. If I point out that I've said it wrong, they'll just assume I'm from somewhere exotic. Well, you, you are, of, when you think about it. So you are a Tamilian working in the NHS. And according to yeah. a report, uh, well, uh, it was brought to my attention. It says that there are one in 12 Tamilians in the NHS. So one in 12 people in the NHS are Tamil. Yep. That doesn't surprise me. There are a lot of us. In the NHS. It's quite nice. Like I I do, I am really bad. Like when I meet someone and I know they're Tamil, I will ask them about it. I'm I, like, I don't, I think there are, I think some people do feel uncomfortable speaking about where they're from or being Tamil. I think, I think it does sometimes cause a bit of contention. Yeah, no, I think it is something that can cause a bit of contention. I think particularly when people have grown up 
in places which are predominantly white, like I think recognizing your own sort of ethnic background, it's slightly uncomfortable because maybe it's something you've spent a whole lifetime sort of trying to hide. Um, but I think being in London, it's it, it, it's something that, you know, I've always had the privilege of being able to talk about quite openly. And I am really interested in where everyone's from. So I will, I will gen if if I see a Tamil name or if I see a Tamil surname, I'll be like, oh hey, uh, so where are you from? You know, India, Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka, Jaffna, and then I'll be like, oh, what town? <laughs> and I'll say the town, and I have no idea why I asked them because I have no idea where any of these towns are. Do you switch accents? No, no, I do. So when I used to work in, I used to really love working in Newham because in Newham, every day that I worked, at least like, okay, maybe not every day, every week, at least once I'd get to speak to one of my patients in Tamil. And if I see a Tamil name, like, so in A&E, I, I briefly did six months of A&E there. And in A&E, you pick your patients. And so you can see, and they're like all by time. And sometimes you like if someone's got like a big, big thing that, you know, is going to take some time to deal with. And someone has a smaller thing that, you know, will take less time. You'll like pick two at a time. And if there's a Tamil name there, I'll be like, can I have this? Picture? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether that's some sort of prejudice or like some sort of. But it's just. It just... I don't think so, because there are times that at work. And based on what I do as a career, sometimes a name comes up and I can just see the name and I know, oh, this is a Yoruba person. And all of a sudden I'm wagging my tail like, yes, there's a Nigerian over here. I want to get to meet this person. So I don't think it's a prejudice. I think it's more like we're living in the UK. We are still a minority no matter what anyone says. But when we see someone, there's a familiarity with that person because of their name. Yeah. But... The Nigerians whom I have met, some of them put on this posh accent and say, oh, hello, yes, um, yes. And, and then they crucify their name. They Okay, in all fairness, some of them don't know how to pronounce their names in Yoruba. So they've anglified their name. Say, my name's Babe Tundi. It's actually Baba Tundi is Babe Tundi. <laughs> but all the, but not, notwithstanding, I still have a sense of pride when I see a, a fellow Nigerian, in particular Yoruba person. So I, I understand exactly what you mean. Yeah. No, yeah, definitely. Like that is probably exactly that sort of tail wagging idea. <laughs> I think that's exactly what I feel. It's that excitement. It's that excitement. And oh my yeah. God, there's a fellow person over here. So right now, let's take a break away from all things medical. And could you kindly share with us what your quote or your proverb that you are bringing to the table, please? Okay, so I want to start. Well, I'm going to oh, say look at you. I want to, to start. Now, here, here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought about this a lot. And this one sounds quite pompous and quite like it's big ideas but it's really not it's something much more manipulative right. and small so my proverb is be the change you want to see right i don't mean this like be the change you want to see in the you world see, right now i can just see american flags just in the background and you <laughs> i don't i mean this as a life hack 
Okay. Please to explain it. So, like from simple things, right? Like, say you want to ha- get your partner to do a bit more housework. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Be the change you want to see. <laughs> so, are you leading by example, or are you just dropping hints? No, don't you don't you you don't do anything. You don't have this expectation in your mind. So, say you want someone doesn't have to be a, say you want have a flatmate and you want them to be more tidy. I'm just taking a very small example. <laughs> and then <laughs> maybe I relate to it, but maybe I don't. I don't know. But then you just you you tidy. You you tidy, you make the flat really tidy and then you're like, "Oh my god, look how tidy the flat is." I just feel like this gives me so much space to think about other things. Don't you feel the same? <laughs> is your flat your quote unquote flatmate there with you while you're saying that while you're taking pride in your work yeah obviously otherwise what's it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah so then then you you kind of do these sort of small suggestions okay huh about how great this new change could be but then it takes a lot of patience because then, you know, you have to just sort of keep doing it and maybe they'll keep being messy. But then you tidy up and be like, God, look how much space you have to work now. Isn't this great? And does your tone change for every time said person doesn't necessarily improve or take the hint? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't think I'm always as enthusiastic as I think in my head. <laughs> Probably more like, see how tiny it is. So let's just say for the sake of argument, said quote unquote flatmate happens to be Tamil. How would you say that Ah. proverb in Tamil to the person or the tone you will use? The pro, I I would never use, the proverb is my secret. Yeah, but say it in Tamil. If it's your your secret, the whole world's going to hear it now. Uh, how would I say in Tamil? Ningal, ningal pakavandia vittiyasatte. This is terrible. Ningal, ningal pakavirumbum vittiyasatte. Okay, you're not saying it with enthusiasm to your flatmate, so I want to hear the enthusiasm. Go. That was very enthusiastic. Was it? <laughs> it could have fooled me. <laughs> yeah, no, Ninga Ningal Parka Virupum Vityasate Madri. no. I am I am killing Tamil here. I am literally literally murdering murdering Tamil. <laughs> This is a Tamil traumatic injury. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so moving away from said flatmate and your proverb, uh, you're recently married. Congratulations. Yeah. How's married life? Thank you. It's really great. It's really great. I think um, as someone who has resisted marriage for many years, it was, it was, it was like a weird um, thing to accept <laughs> because I think for years being a Tamil woman, 
it's it's the constant expectation, right? Like every time you meet someone, when are you getting married? Oh, another exam. Maybe you could think about finding a husband. And like, you know, I literally spent about thirty three decades resisting. Even when I was eight, when people asked me what I wanted to be when I was older, I told them I wanted to be a spinster. That's what I wanted a to be. A spinster. Do they even use that word these days, spinster? I'd read it somewhere and I loved it. I kept using it again and again. And that's why I would tell people when they asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. Don't you think it's fascinating that you have a medical degree and, you know, you're an independent woman doing your own thing. And yet there's this stupid, well, let's call it for what it is. There's this silly expectation that, right, you now need a man to set everything up then you've got to have kids and then yeah it is the thing is i think i used to get really annoyed by it but i think what you always have to remember i think when people say these things i it's in some way because they've had a good time doing it really have they had a good time really really We've seen some families. Let's put our judging hats on. It's like, mm, didn't work out for you, did it? <laughs> that, that, that is the worst. Like when yeah, you know that when someone's saying it to you, you're like, why are you saying that? I do this that you obviously didn't enjoy. But <laughs> I do think when people give you advice, it's because I like it's in some way they see some. They feel like you would benefit from that, right? Like they they see in some they feel in some way that you would get some joy from experiencing that thing that maybe they have, and you know, and that's that's the only way to be honest. I could like smile through those like <laughs> suggestions. Like, oh no, okay, auntie, like you know, thanks. <laughs> I don't know what you meant to say. Why are you not married? Oh, you know, that's all you ever did. Because I know, I know your immediate family. They've been very supportive of whatever decision you made. I, I know that for a fact. They've been very, very supportive. But you, it's always the extended family slash family family. You know, the cousins and aunties whom you're quote unquote related to. And they give their piece of advice. Uh, don't, you know what? Let's not go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> You also like music. You're a DJ. Uh, okay. I wouldn't go as far as I'm a DJ. I did my one and possibly my only and last performance for our wedding, um, which uh, which I practiced a lot for. Like, Gotham basically... I gave Gautham the song. For those listening, Gautham, of course, is her husband. So, doctor as well. Yeah. yeah. I gave my husband the songs uh, that I would... Like, so, we were thinking, because obviously, we both love music. So, music was going to be a big part. And we were like, what are we going to do? And we had loads of our friends DJing, which was amazing. But then, we, we'd always wanted to do... Like, as soon as he proposed to me I was like I don't care about what what else we do for the wedding but we're going to do a joint DJ set like that's all I want to do and we thought about like what we want to do for the music and stuff like that and Gautham like probably had a lot more ideas but I I went to him and I was like I want us to have a chronological like uh 
list of our music and for for our life basically so for from like your childhood to now like different songs that may have influenced say five every five years of your life or something and I'd like thought about this when I was at home alone and I'd like already listed my like my my sort of musical chronology and then I presented it to Gautam saying oh what what do you think about this idea and he looked at any like you know he was just like yeah yeah I see I see and I was like can you do your list now can you and I I love a list I love a list like that I need it down on paper I need to look at it I need all the years next to the songs and you know and so I done all of this for myself and he was like he looked at it and he and I was like you know and I kept asking him for a few weeks what do you think about this like um and he didn't really give me much and then one day he was like okay I've mixed the songs and I was like okay cool and so he'd taken a few of the songs that I'd given him and mixed it and when he when he presented to me I was like no this this is this isn't right <laughs> this is not in chronological order <laughs> and he was like you know that's not how music works <laughs> you can't I can't mix the songs in your chronological order. And I was like, this is not working for me. I can't, I can't do this. And then eventually I had to give in to the idea that music won't work in my chronological order. So then we decided we were going to... So after I'd come to the acceptance of this sort of like situation... Reluctantly, I may add reluctantly yeah like I was still to like the week beforehand I was like are you sure there is no way you can make it work (laughs) just like no and then we were gonna do like two songs per per so I was gonna do the transition for once one song to the other and he was gonna do the next and then I was gonna do the next and obviously Galtham is uh you know a well-seasoned DJ and for him this wasn't a problem but like I started panicking like four weeks behind beforehand I was like Galtham have you worked it out we need to start practicing we need to start practicing and he's like it'll be fine you'll work it out and I was like no I won't like I have no idea what any of these buttons mean what do you mean I'll work it out and he was just like no 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 it'll be fine it'll be fine you'll work it out and then anyway eventually I got him to like because I also was doing an exam right till like about four weeks before the wedding. So like I had to find the time as well. So I think because of that, I was getting a bit stressed. And then eventually I got pinned him down one day to go through how the transitions were going to work. And he'll be like, oh, yeah, you just do a bit of this. You just do a bit of that. And yeah, it'll be fine. And I was like, what? <laughs> and then I had to be like, okay, slow down. And then I I have to like, I'd write the actual transition so I'd be like one minute 32 <laughs> turn, turn, turn FX button to 180 degrees <laughs> and then put slider two up all the way and like it was the least like artistic way of doing anything but it worked it, it did work you guys put on a really good set that on your wedding day it was an amazing set what was your favorite song uh the talabadi song at the beginning Queen. i think because that's actually the first ever movie i remember watching in the cinema and we watched it in chennai um and it was i think like it has 
Like, it's the first time I saw how much people, like, love Rajinikanth. And, you know, I was still quite small. And it's, like, completely stuck with me since. And it's just a great song. It's a great movie. And I think it just had to make it in there. And yeah, and, and, and the wedding was in my brother's garden. So my brother absolutely adores Rajinikanth and adores Alabadi. So I thought it was only apt. May I just say that when you walked onto the platform for your wedding, the way how you came on with your trainers, because it was raining that day, but you had your beautiful sari, you had your trainers, and you came into MIA's Bad Girls. <laughs> so there was a lot of conversation about this beforehand like because <laughs> this is as I said I've, I have some problems with marriage and particularly like Tamil weddings like I think you know there is a certain pressure for women like not just Tamil women but like all women to sort of conform to this idea of like having sort of some sort of extra worth or like importance in society if you're married and and so like I didn't like I want to like and I, I, for, for a long time I felt like I was somehow like letting down like the female struggle by like getting married and then even within the wedding, like I didn't want, I really wanted to be careful about what my, because it wasn't just about me getting married. It's my nieces seeing this. And I think I wanted to give them like a good example of like what marriage can be, what a wedding can be and how like it can be in a way that is still like powerful for us as women and like meaningful and not because it's something we're expected to do or in a way that we're expected to conform to society. And, you know, with town weddings, there's always this like, oh, you know, don't, don't smile too much. Like, you know, don't, don't look like you're having a good time at your wedding. (laughs) What do you mean? And it's just like, look shy. You know, you have to like you know, look yeah. down, don't smile too much, come in with a veil. And I, it's just like, no, <laughs> this is. And also, I think this is the great thing about getting married in your 30s. You can do whatever you want. And when someone <laughs> tells you you can't do it, you can be like, why not? <laughs> more, more like, hold my beer. I'll show you. <laughs> no, but genuinely, when you ask, when so many, there were so many like, it's not ill-intentioned when people say these things it's never it's because that's what they've been told all their lives and they'll be like no like like small weird things people will say i didn't like i've heard people say like you can't wear a blue on your wedding day or something like weird things like oh no no you can't wear blue and then you're like why not and then they'll be like uh because you can't <laughs> because like, in it <laughs> oh, okay good talk good talk and I think it's just like often just and I think when we're younger we don't have that because we don't want to offend people and the thing is people don't get offended if you do it like in a respectful way and the bad girls was probably a bit borderline okay so <laughs> I didn't actually because I didn't want to have a song because there was that there's the classic song I either wanted to go really classic or really like out there and like there's a classic song of like where you know it's like that 
it's it's like very old school. And then uh, there's this Jamie XX song that um, uh, that I'd actually spoken to. Uh, so so there was a girl who was playing the vena. And so, so she was playing the vena and basically I'd spoken to her and I said, okay, do you think there's any chance you could play this uh, Jamie Akasek song on the vena? And then she went away and then she thought about it and then she had a go and she said, no, there's too much space. Like it's very difficult. It'll just, it won't sound very nice. And then I was like, okay, cool. That's fine. And then I said, okay, then what I'm probably going to go with is bad girls and I was wondering whether you could play Vara Yotoli and then just suddenly cut and then we could put bad girls on and she was just like MIA's bad girls and I was like yeah and she was like that's cool but uh is the Ayer okay with this and then I was like oh uh I hadn't really thought about it and then I was just like, I guess it is a religious ceremony, isn't it? Yeah, like maybe I should run it past him. And so I'd uh, spoken to my parents and my parents were like very unfazed by it all. And initially the plan was that they were going to walk in and they were going to put sunglasses on and then I was going to walk out. And I, we had this really elaborate plan, but as things go on wedding days, like everything, like my like choreographed entrance didn't quite work out. It was just like, <laughs> yeah, let's get on, let's get on. And then, so then I spoke to my parents. My parents were like, yeah, this sounds like a great idea. They were practicing with my sunglasses and my brother heard it. And he was like, Vina, no. He's like, why do you always have to do these things? (laughs) 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 Then then I think uh, maybe my niece convinced him. I don't know. But like initially he was a bit reluctant. And then he was like, you know what? Yeah, sure. I'll ask the Ayo. And so... He called our priest up and I'm not sure the priest knew 100% what he was agreeing to. But my brother did say, do you have any problems with what song you play? And he said in Tamil, he, um, I can't remember the exact Tamil words. Some, uh, he said, I don't mind. You can play whatever it is according to your culture. And that's what he said. And I was like, that's brilliant because this is my culture and and I was just like, do you know what? I'm just going to do it because I feel like I don't want to come into a song where it's just like you have to be timid or you have to be shy or, you know, has to be romantic. It could just be, you know, something a bit nuts and something that's representative of your, like, personality. So I took the risk and did it and then... Yeah, I was absolutely, I was like so nervous about it. But my nieces were so excited about it. My parents were so excited about it that it made me feel a bit more relaxed about the whole thing. And then when I walked in, the best thing was um, seeing Gautam, my husband's mum, dancing away to it. And I was like, okay, I feel like I've done well. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm still laughing because I was there and all of a sudden I could just hear bad girls. I'm thinking, okay, well, th- this is happening. <laughs> but it was such a great wedding. Well, before we go, because it's been a great chat, we could go on. But of course, you've got a night shift to look forward to tonight. So I'll make this brief. Um, you used to run a supper club with your sister. 
and also with Ashanti Onka. Now, if you were to host a supper club right now or within the next 10 days, who would you invite and what music would you play? Oh, five people. Actually, no, no, let's not make it five. Let's just have three people you'd invite in the medical profession to in come and sit down. profession? Oh. <laughs> okay, all right. You know what? Okay, all right. Let's move on. Okay, well, let's make it interesting. One person from the medical profession, just one person, and anyone from the Tamil cinema industry. Oh. Okay, that's, that's piqued your interest now, hasn't it? <laughs> uh. The medical profession. There is a surgeon called David Knott, who is a man that has, he's a trauma surgeon who's worked all around the world. He's worked a lot in Palestine. I'd quite like him to come. And there's actually, I do have another person from the medical profession. She's one of my favorite is this lady called Miss Ang. She is about four foot tall. Okay, maybe that's exaggeration. She's like four foot three. And uh, she's also, she's an orthopedic surgeon. And she used to work in uh, Israel and Palestine like in the 80s and has continued working um, till uh, till now. Um, and now she does a lot of like, uh, she she helps with a charity that runs there and things. And so, and she's, she's a force to be reckoned with. Um, I think I'd have her around too. And then obviously, probably Rajinikanth. All right. And one other person. Does it have to be someone famous? My mom. It, it, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. Oh, no. Good my Lord, no. And my grandma. <laughs> okay, right. Now this table's now getting wider. <laughs> I think this will be a really interesting table. Rajinikanth and my dad. God knows what they'll be talking about. You know, that would be an interesting conversation to listen to, man. <laughs> okay, listen, we have to go. But first of all, Avina or Dr. Nagananta, thank you so much for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. How can people get in touch with you if they want to or read some more of your papers? Uh there aren't that many papers to read, but you can read them all on uh, Google Scholar. But you can contact me on uh, through my Instagram on apart dot underscore dot together. Is that it? <laughs> I'm very difficult to contact. Okay. <laughs> I only <respond> Instagram. <laughs> Okay, well, on that note, thank you so much for coming on to this episode of the Swinging Palm Trees podcast. And for those of you listening, you can hear this episode and other episodes on any streaming platforms. And until next time, be well and packs for this